0: Our text is Psalm 130, Psalm 130, it's a short and a powerful prayer, I think, and it's a psalm which has nourished the life of the church for centuries, it's probably, surprisingly perhaps, one of the most prayed psalms in history In in the Eastern Church and in the Western Church. This psalm was, for centuries, prayed daily in the monasteries. And in some cases, it was prayed twice daily. Across long, long centuries. Luther, Martin Luther said that Psalm 130 was a proper master and doctor of Scripture. That's his way of saying, this is a psalm which can be your master, your doctor, your teacher. This is a psalm which can teach you the outlines of the whole story of Holy Scripture. He called it, Luther did, a Pauline psalm. A Pauline psalm. Meaning, this was a psalm in which he could discern the outlines of the gospel proclaimed by the apostle. In fact, there's an interesting connection between Luther... And Paul's gospel and this text, they all converge remarkably some 200 years after Luther in England. You may be familiar with John Wesley, the great hymn writer, uh, and his well-known conversion experience in a 1738 London meeting house And what you may not remember is that Wesley's conversion came because he heard somebody reading Luther's preface to the book of Romans. You know you're a powerful theologian when your preface converts people. (laughs) Luther's preface to the book of Romans is being read. And Wesley says, many of you know this phrase, he says, I found my heart strangely warmed. I found my heart strangely warmed. It's a very well-known story. But what is less well-known is that earlier that afternoon, Wesley heard, and he was deeply moved by the singing of this psalm, Psalm 130, in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And so, we have here in this text the gospel, in its Old Testament form, pointing to pointing toward its fulfillment, its full arrival in Jesus. So we will make four points. They're the ones that are there in your outline at the back page of the bulletin. The cry, forgiveness, waiting, and redemption. So first, the cry. This psalm is known in Latin as De Profundis, D e. P-R-O-F-U-N-D-I-S. I know that's in the bulletin. Um, but that is the Latin for the opening phrase, out of the depths, de profundis. Obviously related to our word for profound or profundity. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. And, and the depths here are not first and foremost the depths of the psalmist's own soul or his own being. Though that is, of course, where this where this cry comes from. But depths or deep waters in some translations refers in Scripture to situations of great threat right, and great distress. The depths are like raging waters. They're chaotic situations. They're untamable, uncontrollable. They threaten to drown us. We feel helpless. We feel near despair. The depths are situations from which there appears to be no escape. They engulf. And these depths are basic to the human predicament. Because the human predicament, and we saw some of this last week, is frail and it's vulnerable and it's threatened, it's imperiled, it's easily overwhelmed, swallowed up. It's out of such depths, without any more detail than that, out of the depths, the psalmist does not merely pray, he does not merely request, he cries with desperation and with urgency to the Lord whose name is invoked 8 times in these 8 verses the depths in their acute need the depths create an acute god-centeredness they have a way of focusing our minds in the depths it becomes clear that God is the most relevant being in existence And so the poet cries, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to, or look with favor on my cry for mercy. The psalmist is in the depths. But Israel has been in the depths. They were in the depths of Egyptian bondage. And they cried like this for God to deliver them. And he did in the Exodus. And it's that same hope. When you're in the depths, you need an exodus. It's that same hope which animates this cry here, this cry for mercy. So, in the depths, we are without masks, undisguised. There's no self-righteousness in the depths. There are no demands. There are just beggars pleading as here for mercy to the God who is thankfully rich, lavish, we are told in Scripture, in mercy. Notice that he cries for mercy. You can see that. You can see that at the end of verse 2. And that implies that the psalmist is in the depths, in part, at least in part, because of sin. The depths created by our own sin, both individually and together, collectively, the depths and its effects are depths which engulf every human being. Right? Because of sin, the race is swallowed up in a web of death, in a web of corruption. In this sense, everyone is in the depths. There's nobody standing on dry land. And so, the text does something wonderful here. It, it makes an appeal to the even greater depths. right? The infinitely glorious ocean of God's mercy. You're in the depths. And there's an appeal then to the unfathomable depths of the Lord's goodness. To lift us out of the depths, out of our Predicament. We are asking God to engulf the depths which engulf us. That's what a plea for mercy is. We ask God to engulf the depths which engulf us. That is the cry in this text. It takes both our situation with a kind of dire seriousness, but it takes the infinite depths of God's mercy even more seriously. So that that brings me then to the second point, which is forgiveness. Verse 3, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins or you marked sins, Lord, who could stand, the psalmist asks, Who could stand? Of course, the point is not that God doesn't know our sins. The point here is that God doesn't charge us with them. He doesn't deal with us in strict equity. Remember back in Psalm 103, we saw the text says that the Lord does not deal with us as our sins deserve. He's rich in mercy. And that mercy underwrites every breath we draw. So the psalmist asked this question. If you marked sins, if you counted them, if you tabulated them, who who could possibly stand And there is behind this question an erroneous view of God, right? which unfortunately is still held by some. The idea behind the question is, well, maybe God's some kind of legalistic bean counter. Maybe he's narrow and judgmental. Maybe he's hypercritical. Maybe he delights in punishment. If that were the case, the psalmist says, if God was a counter, then nobody would stand. It's the same cry that we see in Psalm 143, where the psalmist says, O Lord, do not enter into judgment with your servant. For before you, no one living is righteous. It's not that uh, God won't or will compromise justice. He's not going to do that. It's not that he's not a righteous judge. But it is important for us to learn that God is much more profoundly, much more basically father. Gracious and merciful. God was father from all eternity. He was father before he was creator. He's only judge Uh, what theologians call accidentally. In other words, because of sin in the fall, God becomes judge. God is not intrinsically judge. He is intrinsically father. And so it's very important to get this right. We're not simply balancing the love of God and the justice of God. God is love. Because he's father. And it's the glory of the gospel it's at the heart of the glory of the Christian faith that when this God of Israel fully reveals himself in Jesus Christ, he upholds his justice by bearing it himself in the person of his son. That's how God deals with the justice problem. In love, the judge becomes the judged. And why does he do this? God does this. He bears this justice in his own body, in his son, so that free grace, lavish grace, might flow out to the world engulfed in the depths of sin. That is the Christian gospel. And the essence of this gospel is present even in the Old Testament. Right? The psalmist knows here. It's, this is a gospel, Christ-centered Messiah-centered insight by the psalmist, he knows that God is not, in fact, dealing with him or with Israel in terms of strict justice. Rather, he says, with you, there is forgiveness. Notice that, that with God, at his right hand, this phrase means, if you will, with him, there is forgiveness. It's not only that he has the authority to forgive. It's that he has the disposition to forgive. Right? That he delights to forgive. That he doesn't forgive grudgingly with little post-forgiveness lectures. That it's God's delight to cancel debt. To engulf the depths that you're in to create a new beginning, forgiveness is with him. He sweeps away our sins in a torrent of mercy. There's no symmetry between your sins and his mercy, such that his mercy is just barely enough to cover the extent of sin. Forgiveness is with him. And because forgiveness is with God, the text says that we reverence him or we fear him. Notice the striking order in the text. There's forgiveness with you, the text says, so that you might be feared. The fact that God pardons you is designed to produce fear or reverence for God. And so this, I suggest, is a new Light, a new angle on seeing the fear of the Lord. Fear here is something much more wonderful than fear of judgment. This is fear which flows from God's goodness and kindness. Remember the Aslan character in the C.S. Lewis books? He was scary good. That, that's, that's how God is. He's scary good. And this is then filial fear. It's fear. It's the kind of love and respect children have for beneficent fathers. God forgives you that you might fear him. We sometimes might worry about this. There might be personality types that think, well, this is, this is, not, this is not well regulated. I mean, forgiveness indeed can be taken for granted. It can lead to presumption. Don't we need more threats? But a piety which fears God only, or even primarily because he is judge, is defective. And seriously defective. This is fear which flows from God's fatherly mercies. You know what this reverence here is like? It is like the reverence the incarnate Son has for his Father. How should you fear God? You should fear God the way Jesus feared and loved his father. It's the reverence of adopted children. There's forgiveness with him. Therefore, fear him. And the third point is waiting. This is a word used four times, so there's a big stress on this in the text. In verses 5 and 6, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits Forgiveness, when God pardons us, it leads to reverence. And forgiven people who revere God are waiting people. They wait in hope. Why is that? Why does the Psalm move this way? I think it's because forgiveness, present, when God forgives your sins in the present, as wondrous as it is, it is not our full inheritance, it's a down payment. Forgiveness points to the coming glory. And so waiting here means yearning, or watching, or groaning, or anticipating, to eagerly seek for something. And it's synonymous with the the word for hope in the text. The text goes on and says, in his word I hope. So we're pardoned. We revere the Lord so that we might wait in hope. But how do we wait and hope? What does that mean? How do we do it? Well, it's to place your hope in his word. Notice, in your word I hope. We're not simply hoping for something we're conjuring. But we have in the word, which comes to us in holy scriptures, we have a story. We have a narrative. And that narrative goes somewhere. It has a future. And so, in a sense, the Bible bends you toward the end, toward the future, toward our hope. And so we can't really wait and hope properly without the Word. If you've asked yourself, how can I revitalize my sense of Christian expectation and hope? The answer is, re-engage Holy Scripture. In His Word, I hope. Scripture undergirds, it nourishes all our waiting. Without it, we're just wandering. We're not waiting. So waiting people, hoping people, pilgrim people cleave to the word David says in Psalm 119 numerous times things like this O oh Lord I am a pilgrim in the earth hide not your commandments from me the reason this is important is it's the word ensures you know it ensures you that what you're waiting for is certain to be there is one almost guaranteed way to see your sense of hope, your sense of waiting in the Lord shrunk down, and that is to neglect Holy Scripture, to neglect the Word. So the Word tells us we're waiting for stuff that's certain. We're waiting for an assured vindication. What we are waiting for is for the depths to be swallowed up forever. And this is basic. It's where the Word points us. Israel as a whole, the whole community of Israel, was a waiting community, looking for the Messiah. And the whole community of the church waits. We wait for the bridegroom to come at the end of the age. One of my uh, favorite New Testament passages of, of Paul's is in 1 Thessalonians 1. He says this there, and this is relevant, I think, to the text here. He says that you were delivered from idols to serve the living God and to wait for his son from heaven who delivers us from the wrath which is to come. The reason that text is so important is that it shows us that waiting is not an aspect of the Christian life. It's its basic orientation. You were delivered from idols to serve the living God and to wait. Waiting is a characteristic of the totality of Christian existence. We are always everywhere and only waiting people. And thus we wait for the Lord, the text says. And how passionately... How how are we panting for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning? More than the guy who works third shift wants the sun to come up so he can go home. And that's repeated twice, more than watchmen wait for the morning to emphasize our longing. We're waiting. We're waiting for the dawn, the dawning day. And Paul tells us the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Finally then, I want to talk about the fourth, the fourth thing here is redemption, full redemption. Verse 7, in verse 7, the psalmist finally addresses or now addresses the whole community of Israel. He says, O Israel, he talks to everyone else, Put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love. This is the ground of the forgiveness in verse 3. Why does God forgive our sins? Because unfailing love or covenant love is with him. Because he remembers his covenant, he doesn't remember or charge you with your sins. So it's precisely because God has bound himself to us in covenant that he can forgive us. He's bound himself to forgive now, this kind of God who's made a covenant with you has bound himself to pardon you is the kind of God you can wait for right? with solid, certain hope. Notice the text says, for with the Lord is unfailing love and with him, that there's the with him for the third time. With him is full redemption. Earlier it was with him is forgiveness. Here it's with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. Full redemption reaches out to the new creation, to the restoration, the redemption of all things. Some Bibles translate this as copious redemption or plenteous redemption. Redemption that's cosmic and vast, And full and free, redemption that's deeper than the depths of the human predicament. This redemption will not resonate with you unless you first take the measure of the depth of the human predicament. This is redemption which remakes the world. And the text says, he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is wonderful. He himself means Yahweh incarnate in Jesus. He himself will redeem Israel from their sins. So the text is saying something like this. Where human sin abounds, grace does much more abound. The deeper the depths of the human predicament, the greater, the more full, the more lavish, the unfailing love, the redemption, the forgiveness which is with God. This is why Luther said Psalm 130 is a Pauline psalm. I want you to read Psalm 130 and see the gospel in it. And this unfailing love of God This covenant love implies, it demands, and it shall bring about a new creation. Full redemption. We have this redemption now through the forgiveness of our sins. But we await its full revealing. You are redeemed, and you are waiting for full redemption. The text then pictures... A redemption, or, or another word for redemption is like liberation, setting free of the whole fallen order. All the devastating consequences of the depths which hold the creation in bondage. Paul tells us in Romans 8, and this was the uh, New Testament lesson today. He says that the creation was subject to futility. But it was subject to futility in hope. The same hope that we cling to in God's word of promise. And that hope is that the creation itself, the depths and all of their dread will be liberated from bondage, and Paul says, and brought into the glorious liberty of the children of God. We ourselves, he goes on to say, having the first fruits of this groan We groan for the redemption of our bodies. We are redeemed, but we're waiting the redemption of our bodies. There's a grand, glorious, full, magnificent, engulfing redemption that is still ahead of us. And the scope and the depths and the size of it engulf the whole human spectacle in mercy. That's the kind of proportion this text is trying to get us to see. That is full and plenteous redemption. Nothing less than that. And it's for that appearing of the Lord that we wait, our whole being waits, more than watchmen wait for the morning. I know I've said it many, many times here, I'll say it again. Where this orientation is absent, something is fundamentally wrong with the Christian life. It just becomes a set of rules. I have to praise Jesus, I have to love Jesus, I have this duty, I have that duty, there's this Christian way of doing this. And the whole thing is completely sub-eschatological. It breathes nothing of the spirit of this psalm. But we were saved and delivered to wait, Paul says. And as wait, we watch more than watchmen wait for the morning. The whole difference between the Christian faith and some sort of bourgeois morality lies in getting this right. And this is why Psalm 130 is arguably the most prayed psalm in the history of the church. Because these monks and these fathers and these medievals knew what they were doing. It is a Pauline psalm, a proper master and doctor of Scripture's vast panorama. It moves you from the depths of the human conditions to the heights of the new creation. And I urge you, I urge you, pray through it this week. You have to own it with all the multitudes who've owned it before you. There's a great cloud of witnesses. In fact, the text commands us as in verses 7 and 8 as the Israel of God, you can see that there, to engage it, to imbibe its comfort. O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Embrace its waiting. For we're still in the depths. We're still in the depths. And we need the assurance that God hears our cries for mercy. That forgiveness, that unfailing love, and that full redemption are with him. And that means that nothing in all creation, neither height nor depths, shall sever you from the love of God in Christ Jesus your Lord. Amen.